Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I'm also, also saying a special hello to our sea-based listeners this week. If you're hearing this show on a boat, if you're hearing this show on a ferry, if you are, like, paddling a canoe while you hear podcasts, this one's extra for you, and I hope you've gone to sea without fully leaving society behind. I hope it's just like a boat trip, you know what I mean? Because some people sure want to just go to sea and forget the land-based rest of us. This isn't planet Earth. It's planet Ocean. 7.6 billion people live under the authority of only about 193 land-based governments and only 180 national currencies. Yeah, enough with those stupid, limiting, land-based currencies. I want my money wet. Anyway, that was the voice of Joe Quirk, the current president of the Seasteading Institute. They want to leave land behind and seek freedom on the sea. And you're hearing that not because he's successful or nothing. They haven't built any seasteads. And we'll talk about what those are. But his group is part of a fascinating pattern in the world today, especially in America today, also kind of forever, because life is more interesting than people think it is, because some people want to leave the rest of us behind, and they want to do that in a million different ways that are all kind of the same motivation, often, surprisingly, a dark motivation. We'll dive into that phenomenon this week with two movements. One is the seasteaders I mentioned before. The second is a philosophy called the Benedict Option. And from there, we'll dig into religious denominations, constitutional survivalists, and tech bros who all want to leave the rest of us behind, often specifically by moving to the American Mountain West, if not the Pacific Ocean. And speaking of the Mountain West, I am thrilled to be joined by my cracked colleague, editor, columnist, and more, Christy Harrison. She's fantastic and also has all kinds of life experiences that tie to this. I do too in certain ways. You'll hear all that and I think we're coming at this from a human place. I, I hope we are. And I, I also think the idea of living on a floating libertarian freedom boat is pretty hilarious. So there's kind of that balance this week and I hope you're all right with it. Anyway, let's let you hear that balance. Please sit back or recline on your tax-free Ayn Rand barge while the French Polynesian authorities bear down on you. Either way, enjoy this episode of the Cracks Podcast with Christy Harrison. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We're going to the future and the past, and it's all happening right now. And I don't know, I see these movements as somewhat linked to each other, especially the two we're going to get into uh, first, even though they, I don't think, ever communicate or work together. There's just like themes, you know, that that's the way I see it in my head. I see them as linked to everything, like uh, the big picture uh makes these movements make way more sense to me than they probably would have made a few years ago. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, it is. I guess there is that natural product of any movement of people who want to abandon the rest of us and separate from society. There's something going on in society that's kind of motivating it. So it's always a very, very topical reason, I feel like. <laughs> um, but let's get right into it. We're talking about those kind of groups. Maybe the first one to do is a movement called the Seasteaders. That uh, applies to one group called the Seasteading Institute. And then there are a lot of other things. But it is a fascinating group to me because they want to go and live on the sea. 
They want to achieve freedom, mainly from government, by living on water instead of on land because uh, apparently, according to them, the government mostly exists on land. It's a very, very earth-based <laughs> thing. You don't have government in the water. It's like they never saw The Little Mermaid. I have some instructional videos to <laughs> show these guys before they get too worked up about what they've got going on. <laughs> yeah, that they can't go under the water either. There's a king down there and witches, a lot of oppression. Yeah, there's a few sort of prior movements about it. The, the overall thing is the term seasteader, S-E-A-S-T-E-A-D-E-R, and it's sort of a play on the term homesteader, which is a thing that I think a lot of people would recognize from history or uh, just kind of traditions. In the U.S., there were homesteading acts in the 1860s from Congress uh, that were involved in dividing up land in the West among settlers. And so it's like a very, very uh, long-running idea that people can go out into relatively open land. There were probably Native Americans living there first. Right, um, right. But land that the government had not assigned to anyone, and if they make a home there, it becomes theirs. And so seasteaders say, hey, we just want to take this very old tradition and build floating platforms where we have like probably self-sufficient, solar-powered, maybe hydroponic crops, any approach they can do to living on water and presumably international waters. So then they also don't have to pay taxes or follow any laws. There's a lot there. Like, first of all, don't we have technology to be able to live on the water comfortably for long periods of time called cruise ships and, <laughs> um, and like whatever the military whatever those guys use to live uh, under the water uh, for years a year at a time or whatever like they're it's like they're reinventing the wheel but you know here's the wheel there's a wheel that works why aren't they just living on boats i don't totally understand the logic of creating entire cities when we kind of have a version of this i guess they don't want to sail i don't know and then how far have they gotten with their with their plans? Like how are, are yeah. they assume there's nobody living, living on these yet, right? Yeah, it's the kind of thing where it hasn't really happened yet. But also, weirdly, some people sort of attempted it, especially in the 60s and 70s. There was one, uh, I, I don't know what to call it, an event, uh, a movement, I don't know. It was called the Republic of Minerva. And it was in the early 1970s, a, I want to say a group of people, but also kind of just one guy set up a uh, set of barges on some reefs in the Pacific Ocean and declared it an independent nation called the Republic Aww. of Minerva. And then the <laughs> nation of Tonga made them stop and like cleared them out <laughs> with some police and they had to. I'm sure living on a barge is fine. It's just, I don't know. I, I. I think we're going to get into this a little bit later, but I do want these people to succeed. I do want them to figure this out and try a new thing and for it to work. Because at the end of yeah. the day, like I want to know that there's a way to live if all terrible things go down and they've like figured out how to live on the ocean and, and it's fine. And, um, and probably just like kind of being one of the villains from Atlas Shrugged when I explain it this way. But like I don't want them to fail. I, I think I agree. Yeah, like any endeavor that is trying to test how we can live in a basic way and, you know, right, find new things right. to do. That's true, yeah. Hey, great. You know, and if, because uh, this Republic of Minerva, it was basically one guy, a real estate mogul in Nevada originally named Michael Oliver, 
who um, raised money to build a utopian society on barges mounted on reefs in the Pacific. And they like minted coins with Athena's head on them and everything. That's kind of cool. I mean, yeah. that's so dreamy. It's like, bold. it's like, oh, I want to live in a fairy tale for a little bit. I'm going to go to move to Minerva. Yeah, it's not like evil or anything. It's just uh, yeah. odd. And then also the um, it's the king of Tonga because at the time it was a monarchy. I think it still is. The king said, actually, these reefs are part of our territorial waters. And so they cleared them out and made them stop. And then there's also another version of it, which is Sealand. Have you heard of the the Principality of Sealand? I think so. There were some old forts in the waters around England and the UK, uh, sort of in the channel there, mainly built to put artillery on in case the Germans ever tried to come over. And uh, these forts are just sort of platforms built on pillars in the water. And a very small family basically took over one of the forts in the 1960s and declared it an independent country called the Principality of Sealand. And a man named Paddy Roy Bates declared himself the monarch of it. And they've (laughs) still kind of remained a very, very small nation because the UK just keeps saying that's part of the UK's waters and you can't do that. And they also like updated some maps and things to extend their reach into the water to officially make it part of that. But the people haven't quite been kicked off or anything. So it's just this like floating nation. And his goal was (laughs) to get out from the iron heel of paying taxes in Britain. Didn't want to do it anymore. I mean, that's fun. All of these are libertarian places, right? Like they're they're all under the idea of that's their that's their motivating force is to get away yeah. from the taxation and big government. And is that what's going on with all of them? Yeah, the one the ones we're talking about that seems to be the main thing. Like there have been a few other uh, Buckminster Fuller in the 1960s developed a blueprint that he called Triton City, which would have been a massive floating city for thousands of people. I feel like I had a, a moment in my life when I would have been like, yeah, let's do this. I'm not saying I was like ready to really throw away America and, <laughs> and go live on a barge with my children or anything, but it really appeals to a certain age point, age before you're fully committed to adulthood. And I think that there was a time when a lot of this stuff would have just been like absolutely made sense to me like I kind of have vague memories of my husband and I kind of like checking out some of the maybe not these places but like other places where libertarians are trying to try out stuff they've all failed Mm. in the years since like almost every libertarian utopia has collapsed because it turns out using collective (laughs) energy and um finances from the whole is like a major innovation in why we succeed as a society, I think now. But 10, 15 years ago, all of this would have been like totally making sense to me. And I would have hoped, I would have thought they would have done it. Actually, I would have thought they would have figured it out by now. But when when you say you and your husband were looking at Places you, were you mostly looking like, at land-based places or or these uh, no just ones? the idea of it because oh, you know idea, I don't think yeah. we were ever going to be like yeah we're going to go live on the ocean or anything but we definitely voted libertarian at some point and we're sure. just like ready to commit it became my new religion for like a year you know what I mean like you like yeah. are all in this is how it should be until until things are this way then nothing's going to be right and then you kind of grow up and you realize that (laughs) you really need taxes like you you, I don't know how to pay roads and I don't want to pay to 
drive on somebody <laughs> else's road or you know i don't want right. to pay for the light physically like i'm going to give you money to fix the stoplight i know that's a really dumbed down version of how a libertarian society would work but i was just curious yeah. if you had ever had that phase or if maybe that is a uniquely republican transition and that people who do grow up with a already progressive point of view never are attracted to Ayn Rand's books because I do think it's a nice like segue from a conservative position, you know, to go into conservative economics, but liberal social values, which is where I think libertarians land like hands off of everything. Right. If you are already a progressive liberal person, maybe this, this idea of hands off of everything never appeals to you because it doesn't, you are already starting off in a different place. I think a lot of them just want to take our existing government and shrink it down and not not like completely burn down society or something. But I think in my particular life, it, from my perspective, we've mostly moved that direction anyway. Like we've, we, I think we've lost a lot more uh, social programs and care for people mm-hmm. than we've gained uh, with the notable and maybe temporary exception of Obamacare. So it's the kind of thing where I, I might have been more libertarian if things hadn't already moved that way in a way that upset me. You know what I mean? Like right, I, I right. think I might have gotten into it if I thought we were missing it in some way. But that's the idea behind a lot of these is that the government doesn't work and we got to start over. And I kind of appreciate that. Like I can I can get on board with trying something else at this point. And especially this seasteading group seems to also think that one element that lets us try that is technology. Like we have um, all these different just uh, pure abilities and schemes and ways to organize that we didn't have before. And the the main modern group we're looking at is called the Seasteading Institute. And it was founded in 2008, um, mainly by Peter Thiel, who is a famous Silicon Valley person now in particular for uh, killing Gawker and also supporting Donald Trump. And then also another guy named uh, Patrick Friedman. And he's the grandson of an economist named Milton Friedman, who we, we don't need to get into like the weeds of the history of economics, but basically the founding libertarian economist. Like he saw Keynesian economics where there's more government inter- intervention and said, no, other way, less government intervention and won a Nobel Prize and is a landmark person. So his grandson and Peter Thiel founded this institute that according to this SFGate article, it was billed as Burning Man meets Silicon Valley meets the water. Which What's is the Burning Man part? Yeah. <laughs> like, why, do, why does that need to be there? I might sound like I'm making fun of them. I'm not. I think part of it is drugs. Like I think, and that's one oh. one element of libertarianism that has always, I think, made sense to a lot of people on the internet, and, and yeah. partly to me is yeah. that we could not, uh, you know, be draconian about people putting substances in their own bodies. Okay. Like, that could be fine. All well, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. And there's a lot of concept art that this group and other groups have made, and it looks like the cover of science fiction novels or like a mm-hmm. drawing of a space station and some kind of sci-fi. And I mean, um, we kind of need this, though, right now. We could really use some imagination and fun ideas and concept art that makes us smile. Because <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I don't think Space Force is going to happen. So 
<laughs> we can start thinking about the ocean <laughs> as our new frontier. That's fine. So they so this group hasn't really built anything yet. And the that same SFGate article I quoted, they also talked to UC Berkeley professor of architecture, Margaret Crawford, who says, the whole thing is so far from any kind of conventional urban planning. The physical premises are just ridiculous. And quote. <laughs> And is, is generally not on board with it. They also, in their plan, part of part of their pitch to the public is that it will be completely environmentally neutral. Like they'll do aqua farming and they'll have solar panels and it'll be sort of exploring how we can better help the environment, which is uh, very exciting. Um, but also at the same time, they're kind of exploring how we can stop having uh, democracy which is troubling to me. I'm not totally on board with that. And it's a little bit less of the public part of the pitch. So who's in charge here? Nobody? You go to this place and there's nobody running it. Or maybe they kind of elect a rotation. Or like, what's the government structure? It's all theoretical because, like we say, they haven't built it. But when they interviewed uh, Mr. Friedman about it, he described it as, quote, I envision tens of millions of people in an Apple or a Google country and it's where the high-tech giants would govern and residents would have no vote. Quote, if people are allowed to opt in or out, you can have a successful dictatorship. But that's not libertarianism. That's not. <laughs> that's a, he, he's done a bait and switch. This is not the same thing. as. I, I feel a, a key part of freedom is everyone being allowed to vote. But uh, I, I can get behind that. <laughs> Yeah, and I think so. I think their goal is governments can be more like businesses that we just choose among, even though there are all kinds of examples, such as the cable company, where they just end up with some kind of monopoly and it sucks. Uh, they feel that if we uh, treat government like a free market, where you just choose the government that you're going to be part of, uh, then everything will be fine. Because if someone becomes a dictatorship, we can just opt out and sail our sea house to a different set of uh, sea houses kind of thing. And they say that, like, it's so easy to change jobs, you know, like, right. oh, if you're not happy with your job, you just go get another job and everything will be fine for you. And that's actually not true at all. Like, you know, you don't it, it's a free market, but it's not like you can just like go from one job to another. And I imagine once you're committed and locked into your job country, it's going to be yeah. even harder <laughs> to be able to just opt out if things aren't what you want them to be. That's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, and I feel like maybe part of the reason they're saying that and they think that is one of the very, very few industries and jobs where that is true is if you're an in-demand Silicon Valley engineer or coder, you know? Their worldview has been shaped by... Yeah. In those guys' specific lives, I think it's true. And maybe it would be true for like the people who have this option to even consider this magic uh, water world where you live in a dictatorship but can choose from many dictatorships. I, could, I don't know. Yeah, because uh, we're talking about freedom a bit. This other founder, Peter Thiel, who's more well-known, for one thing, his take on democracy is pretty similar. He did an essay. It was in what's called Cato Unbound, which is a journal of the Cato Institute libertarian think tank. And he, in it, says that between cyberspace and outer space lies the possibility of settling the oceans. To my mind, the question about whether people will live there, answer, enough will, are secondary to the questions about whether seasteading technology is imminent. Um, and then he goes on to say that it's risky, but it's not, uh, it's like, it seems about as doable as any other big initiative like colonizing a planet or something like that. Uh, yeah. And so he's very hopeful about that, you know, great. And then in the same essay, he says... 
quote, I remain committed to the faith of my teenage years to authentic human freedom as a precondition for the highest good, but I must confess that over the last two decades, I have changed radically on the question of how to achieve these goals. Most importantly, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible, end quote. And then he also goes on to say that the 1920s were the last good time in American politics. Uh, and then here we go, quote, since 1920, the vast increase in welfare beneficiaries and the extension of the franchise to women, two constituencies that are notoriously tough for libertarians, have rendered the notion of capitalist democracy into an oxymoron, end quote. I don't understand what he just said. What did he just say? That I think um, so. I he had to do like extra follow up essays to explain what he meant here uh, and okay. explain. But it, the text of it is saying that. Um, women's suffrage and welfare have been a disaster. And I, wow. I, I don't think so. Uh, in particular, women's <laughs> suffrage. It's pretty okay with me. I'm pretty on board. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's supportive of Trump. And he also, there's, we'll, we'll link to a whole thing about it because it's sort of separate. But there's a long running thing where the website Gawker uh, outed him as a homosexual person. And from there, he funded a lawsuit by Hulk Hogan that shut down Gawker. And so it was a whole uh, separate okay. internet business thing. But and he's also off the seasteading train for the most part because he left the board of it in 2011. And then in a 2017 interview, he said about seasteads, quote, they're not quite feasible from an engineering perspective. That's still very far in the future. Um, but then the next part of the interview, they say that he does think human violence is more of a risk than a pandemic or a robot army and says, quote, it's the people behind the red eyed robots that you need to be scared of, end quote. I don't necessarily disagree with that. It's an interesting thing where I think these seasteaders, there's some like stuff about helping the environment, mainly, I think, just because they feel we have the tech to do it. But it seems mm -hmm. to be mainly about more freedom and also survivalism. Like there seems yeah. to be a real root in it that the society is going to collapse and they need to flee to the water before that happens, which is sort of a it's a very, very dark perspective. Is it necessarily a society is going to collapse and we need to get out of here or society sucks and we need to get out of here? Like, I wonder if if they're all in their minds going to that extreme that we need to be ready for the end of uh, end of the times or end of civilization or just like, I'm done with this and we can manage ourselves on our own. Because um, that's sympathetic to me. Like, I, I can I can appreciate that. Yeah. Well, and in particular, like, I don't like the idea of groups deciding that the rest of us are screwed and so we should be abandoned. But I also don't reject the idea that they can go and do their own thing and their own way of living if they want to. Like, it's fine. And uh, yeah, if, they're, if their goal is that second thing, then they're allowed. Like, there's nothing stopping sure. them. Yeah. Well, I, I put some notes in here because the I think you're thinking heavily about the abandoning part. And so, like, the idea that the rest of us are screwed is a big piece of the of the equation for you, which makes it feel like there's an emotional resentment towards people who are just walking away. And I kind of see it like that's uh, almost like what we do as Americans is that we we were founded on a walking away situation. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like it's it's part of our genetics to just quit when something is not working out and try to something new. Like every single state in the country has their own starting over story and before they became a part of the United States and 
Um, like yeah. the suburbs are a starting over story, which is an abandonment thing. Like it's people giving up on the city and saying, forget this, I'm going to go and I'm going to take my tax bases and we're going to build new schools and we're just going to start over over here instead of dealing with infrastructure and problems and crime in the city. But I don't necessarily always think it's a, um, a negative thing. Like I think it's a kind of a life affirming, optimistic, believe in yourself kind of thing to say, I can do better. I can, me and my people that are like me, we can try something new. And I don't fault anybody for that. I mean, in the yeah. rest of us could also try something new or try to fix things. Cause I, I mean, there's people who try things that are new and there are people who fix the system and there are people who improve. And so I don't have like an emotional negativity feeling towards um, the seasteaders or survivalists or any, any of them. I feel like, you know, that's a very American thing to do is to try to figure stuff out on your own. I can't do it. Because I don't know how to do plumbing and electricity and all the other things that are required to be able to break out on your own. But it's pretty ingrained in us to try it. That's a good point that it, it really does go, like you say, all the way back in our history. Like, and, not, and not just the American Revolution, but the pilgrims and the Puritans mm-hmm. forming colonies in Massachusetts. They were like, uh, we need to fully disconnect from the society we're in and move to move across the Atlantic Ocean when that was very, very hard. Every migration story, like every, like, you know, the our, the indigenous people who live here, the Native Americans who lived here, were also started off as people who were like, oh, we don't have enough food. We got to go. And they get up and go. And every new thing comes from a separation, I guess. Every new innovation, every new place, every new good thing we have in our lives came from somebody or a group of people just stopping what they were doing and trying something else or a version of that. I applaud these, all these different groups and I'm fascinated by them because the story that happens next is also interesting, like whether it works or whether it doesn't work or, and the, the thinking and the stories they have in their head that got them there are also almost always fascinating. They're all around (laughs) me because I'm in North Idaho. So it is really worth like giving them some credit for wanting to build their own thing and often being very uh just kind of leaving the rest of us alone like they it's not like yeah. they want to build seasteads and then kind of, yeah, invade beaches or something but it uh the, in particular that idea that their mindset it is very very fascinating like all of the mindsets that lead people to uh want to do this now today like in this particular country in this particular era of technology and society and like I think I I'm not upset with the basic idea that they want to leave I am frustrated with like their reasons why like being just mad about having to pay taxes that help support the rest of us when we're paying taxes too or like we'll talk about with some other groups just being opposed to gay people in a basic way like that is just very deeply frustrating to me well the other piece of that is that i don't know about you but i've like totally been unfriending on facebook over the last year almost down to where i'm literally only friends with people who have my views now because it became this it just became too hard to find common ground or to find nice things to think about people when they are putting up a defense of the baby cages. I mean, like literally I just unfriended someone because I'm like, I, I, it's become a moral, this is now a moral thing. I cannot be friends with you. We are too, too far apart in our, in our thinking. So 
I think that's where these people land, where they just say it's it's a gentler, more humanitarian <laughs> approach to just say we don't belong together. And it's like a divorce that happens when it's like totally the right thing. Like you guys should get a divorce. I, I don't think that's bad when people who, for religious reasons, are opposed to gay marriage and they're not backing down. This is what they believe. And I'm not mad at them for that. I can't change, you know, where, how they interpret their text. And so if they're going to say, we're just not going to participate, I'm like, yeah, okay, we'll be fine without you. Like, and I'm sure you'll be fine on your own to whatever extent you want to be on your own. Like, it's almost becomes the more reasonable option to just let people go their way, which is also like (laughs) the basis of the Civil War, right? So I don't want to say that that we should have just let the South secede. I don't know if anybody's interpreting it that way, because that's not what I mean. I don't know. Like when you try to force people to believe what they don't believe, then at that point, how much harder work is that than just let them go? I know what you mean. I think there's probably no one hard and fast way to handle that kind of... uh like societal divorce that they want to enact. Like in some cases that needs to be fought. In some cases that maybe uh, just can be allowed to happen. And it's a weird um, thing because, uh, yeah, exactly. There is that huge range of cases from the American Civil War to right. these goofy Silicon Valley people who want to live on boats. Like it's And I'm really sure there are people, yeah, I'm sure there are people during the Civil War, it's like, just let them go. They, they believe in owning humans. That's bad. Let them go. We don't want them. And with, and with these seasteaders, they are uh, still here. They're still on land. Their last greatest attempt to do it was... In uh, 2017, they had a memorandum of understanding worked out with French Polynesia to build seasteads near Tahiti. But then by the next year, French Polynesia said it was a non-binding agreement and that it had expired uh, within the year. And so they no longer had that thing to set up, even though they thought it would be a perfect spot because there's like a fiber cable from Hawaii to French Polynesia. So they could still do all their tech stuff, you know, but they would also be at sea and, and on their own. But so it's fallen through and they haven't actually built uh, this thing. They're still stuck with the, the rest of us. That probably brings us into the other main movement that fascinates me, which is uh, it's not a movement really yet, but the idea is called the Benedict Option. And it comes from a book by a writer, and he's um, a senior editor at a site called The American Conservative. Um, His name is Rod Dreyer, and it was published last year, and it was based on a long string of blogging and interviews and video uh, appearances that he's done about this Benedict Option idea that he's been working on for a long time. And the book, like if you're one of our listeners who is not um, like a conservative Christian person. You maybe have never even heard of this, but it debuted. I had never heard of this. Yeah, I only, I forget how I even stumbled on its existence, but it debuted at number seven on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's an idea that he's been talking about for over a decade. And apparently interest in it spiked after the 2015 Supreme Court decision, Obergefell versus Hodges, that um, legalized gay marriage across the country. It's an idea that people need who are uh, conservative and Christian and part of a specific, very orthodox culture. Dreyer is saying that the modern mainstream culture around them is chipping away at that, and it's going to wreck Mm -hmm. that, and it's going to convince their children or even themselves to not follow it anymore. 
And so what they need to do is live differently. And in many ways, it's what he calls a strategic withdrawal from the society around us. Like you don't move to the sea on a boat, but you just live differently. He's not wrong. I think this is a really smart last ditch effort to save conservative Christianity because he's not wrong. Like in a generation, I think there will be gay people preaching in evangelical Christian churches. I mean, like, I don't think the the issues that we have today are going to be issues in a generation or two. So I think he's correct that the conservative values that have been a part of the church for years and years and years are getting worn down. Yeah, I think, yeah, like correct that there are changes happening, that, that this thing he cares about is uh, receding. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, like uh, churches are changing. They're Christians, young Christians don't believe the same things that they or don't have the same values that their grandparents do. There's like a big, I, I assume because I haven't been in churches. Uh, but <laughs> I do think the church itself is responding to this very, very, very fast liberalization. I don't know the right way to put it, but it's, it, things have been moving very fast. And I think he's responding to it in a way that makes sense if you want to preserve those values that uh, that I had when I was growing up that I don't have now. You know, like the moral stuff, the homosexuality is wrong and all the stuff that I was taught when I was little, I don't think that will be easy to keep teaching children. And so the idea of like hunkering down and trying to retain, focusing on retaining your culture in a small way is probably the only way that it's going to last. It seems like it's a philosophy that says, hey, if you feel this way, you can live your specific life in a different way Mm -hmm. to deal with it. And that in general, doesn't mess with other people's liberty, I think, uh, unless they vote to legislate against people's liberty, which they are. Um, But but other than that, it's like pretty... almost kind. Like, it's like, hey, you, the world's going away that's different from you. You don't need to like go scream at people about it. Instead, live your own way and see if you can bring it back later is sort of a general element of it. It's a group he brings up as a parallel is like Orthodox Jewish people or Hasidic Jewish people. Uh, you just maintain your traditions yeah. and cultures within your group and you keep that pretty sacred and you keep it like this is what we believe and you just hammer that in and you can still function within society and represent your group in a nice way it's just you want to make sure your kids and their kids know what you're about and I think that's actually I think it's kind of good even though I don't necessarily agree with what he believes here I don't want all of us to be the same. I don't want us, overall as a society, I want us to become more liberal and loving and and accepting, but I don't want us to all be the same. And so when, you know, one group is still adhering to this text that I grew up on and they believe in, I don't mind that. I, I, you know, I, I hope that he's able to maintain a certain part of the Christian traditional faith as I knew it. Yeah, it is. A, there's something to be said for traditions. There's plenty to be said for raising your own family in a conscious way. And uh, so there's a lot of elements of it that are, uh, I think, well meant and, and probably positive. There's a FAQ he does where he sums up a lot of things about it. And quick description from him, quote, the term Benedict option symbolizes a historically conscious anti-modernist return to roots an undertaking that occurs with the awareness that Christians have to cultivate a sense of separation of living as what Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon call resident aliens in a Christian colony in order to be faithful to our calling, end quote. And that's like it. 
is explicitly a withdrawal from the rest of us, uh, but it's mostly in mind, you know? It's also how I was raised, too. Like, there was a very strong sense of we are not of this world um, in evangelical churches. Like, we don't belong here. We belong in heaven. We're just visiting. We need to keep ourselves separate. And yeah, there's still an evangelical approach, like where we need to reach other people so they can also go to heaven with us, too. But, you know, there's a verse, don't be conformed to this world, but be of a sound mind and good body. And like it, it, yeah. that is a part of the faith that we don't belong here. So what the things he's saying aren't incredibly foreign to me. Yeah, I think. And I mean, I, I grew up with a lot of Christianity in my life and, and there are elements of it that I can see from my uh, upbringing, too. There's also weird thing to me about this movement, which is that like in that description, he mentioned it being historically conscious was the thing he said. And he this name, the Benedict option refers to an actual person. His name was St. Benedict of Nursia. He was a Catholic monk in the 400s and 500s. And the thing is, he is Dreher is talking about being like this person who Dreher frames as fleeing the dark ages. Uh, this overall idea is that St. Benedict of Nursia was in Rome as the Roman Empire was collapsing. And so he fled to the hills to build a monastery and then seed other monasteries to like keep Western culture going because that's the best culture. You know, that's the only one. In an interview with National Review, he said, quote, our vocation is to live in the world. But how can we do that while facing challenges that Christians have not had to face for 1500 years? Pope Benedict XVI said that we are living through a period of disruption comparable to the fall of the Roman Empire. I think he's right, end quote. And there are so many just historical inaccuracies in everything he thinks about this guy and also the process of the Roman Empire not being an empire anymore. Um, like, if you want to read about it on Cracked at home, uh, the article Five Ridiculous Myths You Probably Believe About the Dark Ages by Jay Wisniewski, among other things, there was no Dark Ages. That was full-on not a thing that happened. And it's the central historical touchstone of this entire Benedict option. Actually, what they're calling the Dark Ages would have been kind of a libertarian dream, right? Like, there just was yeah. less government. There was less oversight and less infrastructure and less of a presence of the government and things just right. kind of fell apart for a little bit, but it wasn't like a total, <laughs> now it is the dark ages and we are in the dark ages. What they're calling the dark ages, for one thing, the Catholic church got a lot stronger. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think Rod Dreher would have loved it. Uh, but also in particular, these seasteaders would have been in heaven relatively compared to life in the Roman empire because it was a time when, so the Roman empire going away means that the Roman practice of slavery goes away and then people move to either being serfs which is brutal and and has some elements mm -hmm. of slavery or they became free labor and they weren't slaves anymore so that's pretty <laughs> good i i think if i want to put a value judgment on it that also meant that the massive roman military went away uh, militaries the were decentralized so instead of wars like the second punic war that killed hundreds of thousands of people you have wars where entire armies are 10 or 20,000 people at most and it's a much much smaller thing uh, and also the roman empire ran on heavy taxation. There were a lot of taxes if you lived in the Roman mm -hmm. Empire. And when it went away that uh, some places were heavily taxed by the new people, others were not. It got changed up. Um, so like you say, yeah, it was it was much more libertarian than the Roman Empire. 
And it wasn't <laughs> really a dark age. That was just a term invented by uh, the poet Petrarch in the 1300s to describe anything that happened between his life and the Roman Empire. He just really, really liked the Roman Empire and was <laughs> way into it. That's cute, though. That's so funny. Like, what people will call our time is just based on their own emotions and their own lives. Like, oh, I'm so I'm such a bad mood about these days. This is the Dark Ages, and it sticks. <laughs> Yeah, and this Some and this emo historian. <laughs> <laughs> if we start an emo historian uh, joke Twitter oh. account, that would probably be pretty good. Actually, <laughs> that would be that would be a good time. Copyrighted here, but yeah, and then this guy Rod Dreher, he believes that right now is a thing like this Dark Ages that never happened. Another reading of history he has is in that National Review interview, he compares what's happening to American Christian culture today to what happened to Polish culture when Poland was invaded by the Nazis and the Nazis tried to erase like Polish culture and Germanize it. And in the next line of the interview, he says, we don't face anything that severe, obviously, but as Wilkins says, we are losing our cultural memory all the same. If only he didn't take it that far, I would be on board. If only he didn't say it like that, because I do agree with him some that Christians are going to lose ground. I just wish he hadn't done the Nazi comparison, but he did. Exactly. And I think it's tricky, too, because he also in his writings claims that he doesn't think Christians need to go live in the hills and completely separate from society but from what I've read of it and what I've seen of it, I can't see any way he's not saying that. Like he's he's saying that and he's said in other things that any church needs to be evangelical and constantly bringing in new people. I don't understand how a church would do that and also basically hole up and wait for the dark ages to end. Because also in interviews, he's called the uh, movement toward gay rights, the tip of the spear is the term he used for like a collapse of Christian culture in the country. So he clearly feels that like something is going on that we need to weather and then also somehow convert a bunch of people while talking to no one. You know, it's a really weird mix of, I think, just wanting a lot of things at once that conflict with each other. Well, the Mormons are a very good example of how to do what he's talking about, because they are still a very fast growing church. And they're also still very inward looking and community based. And they have they hang on to their own traditions and keep maintain their culture nicely. Like they can work in everyday, you know, society and you can be friends with Mormons, but they know what they believe and they stick to it. And I, I mean, I'm sure there's some chipping away going on within that community as well, but it's a yeah. good example of what he's talking about, like how to maintain your faith, live in the world, still reach out, but keep your tradition and culture moving forward. Yeah, that's a, a great parallel because it, uh, yeah, much like Orthodox Jewish communities, like those communities are at least stable, if not growing. I think Mormonism is growing because they do so much mission work. I think so. Um, yeah. And it works. Like they're able to maintain their traditions without, I guess, like aggressively antagonizing other people or something like that. Maybe they are and I don't know. Who knows? It's a big wide world. Uh, but it seems like it's <laughs> the kind of thing he's talking about happening in other communities. So there are practical elements of what he's describing. Yeah. 
Uh, I wish it was in any way based on history or reality. Even though he's not coming out and saying I'm against Trump and what I'm saying, and I haven't dug into any of his ideas beyond this, what you've told me, I, it does seem like he's coming out in response of where conservative Christianity has landed as well. Like it's not just a response to the world. It's a response to how the Christian right has just become so ingrained in this particular political view. And it almost sounds like he's stepping away from that and trying to regroup. Lots of Christians are just stepping back and saying, this is not what we wanted and reevaluating their relationship with politics and how to live among the world and deal with politics at the same time and divorce themselves from where the Republican Party has landed. Because I know what you mean. Like it is, it does seem hard to be extremely spiritual and also be very involved in politics because it is so difficult and so fraught and it involves so much fighting, you know, and it's so it's a hard way to go. He, I think, falls kind of in that same boat of Christian people who are also heavily involved in the politics of things, too. Uh, well, for one thing, he has a job blogging for the American conservative about politics. So he just kind of is talking about that all the time. But there's one thing he said, uh, and it's written up in The Atlantic from his book. He describes basically a situation where he feels that culture is going to move in a direction where Christian people cannot get jobs anymore because there will be enough of what he calls sexual diversity dogma. And he says that everyone working for a major corporation will be frog marched through diversity and inclusion training. End quote. I do think there come there will come a time when you, when you want to get a job, you're going to go through LGBTQ training. I think that would be good from his perspective. That's a, another chip away at his at his upbringing. So I don't think he's totally wrong. Like you think he's correct that it will become necessary in order to hold a job to at least keep your anti-gay feelings to yourself kind of thing? Like you'll have to go Maybe. along with the training. I mean, I don't see this as totally an unnatural progression for you to have to go through LGBTQ training to hold a job. I think at our job, we have had, in general, diversity and sensitivity training where there's it includes things like don't make fun of people's sexual orientation and, and be yeah. receptive to it, like right now, you know, in life. I, so the thing that he's saying, I think, is correct. And if you're really holding tight to that that viewpoint, then you maybe you should be thinking about other ways to employ yourself. It will be harder to continue to have a job for somebody else's company that you don't own if you certain people shouldn't have the same rights as the rest of us. And I think that progression has been happening across gender, race, everything. And, and so he's like right in the sense that if you're just going to completely stick to those guns, you do have to kind of figure out a new way to live. I, I think the simpler solution is to just start accepting more people. And what he's seeing and he's probably anticipating is that probably his kids will. You know, probably his grandkids will. Probably he is, you know, trying to hang on to this group, but he's probably not going to win. But he can try. He's going to have a hard time of it. Yeah, because if he can, like, try harmlessly, uh, like with basically any action any of us does that's harmless, I'm pretty okay with it. Oh, look, I'm a libertarian. Here we go. Uh, But it's, you know, it's basically fine. Because, like, I'm into libertarians if they don't, 
stop paying taxes and leave the rest of us to suffer. And I'm into uh, people being devout about their religion if they don't feel they need to legislate against certain segments of society. If they were more on board with the rest of us, I would be more excited about their ideas and more <laughs> more into them. But I And I also just find it strange looking at these, in particular, these seasteaders and also these Benedict Option folks that... I feel like I shouldn't see so many parallels between them because they, the things that they want other than space to be themselves are very, very different. Like one group wants to be the, uh, practice their conservative religion on land and uh, among the rest of us. And the other group wants to move to the ocean in like high tech <laughs> future boats. It's crazy that I, I feel similarities between them. Yeah. I don't know. We should just get them together and see what happens. <laughs> and then the reality show funds the whole project. Oh, We're all yeah. set. We can sell fine. ads I'd against it. There are other groups, especially like these two we looked at. We should probably look at North Idaho because it's actually where sort of both uh, similar groups have landed because there's a past episode of the podcast that uh, we did with uh, Jack O'Brien, of course, and also Katie Golden about Silicon Valley people who are also becoming along the lines of doomsday preppers. Like they're not fleeing society so much because of specific politics. They just think it's going to collapse uh, because of economic stuff, social stuff, giant California earthquakes, something like that. Um, and so they're building compounds in New Zealand or in the American Mountain West or other places to like survive and then also there are a separate group of people that we talked about on a podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. Among many things that we talked about was the American Redoubt, which is sort of mm -hmm. a loosely affiliated group of mostly people who are seeking a more libertarian life in places like North Idaho, uh, because they feel that that's a, a spot they can all uh, kind of go and do that thing without so much interference. Yeah, I think I know people who are part of this that are not explicitly like, I am a redoubter, but uh, they, they're they here and I must be interacting with them. I definitely know some off-grid people and I know some people who moved here from California just to kind of get away and to become more self-reliant. And there's a for sure vibe of self-reliance around here. So I know people who, you know, yeah. they grow their own food and they do their own thing on the mountains and they, I don't think they're all on board with the apocalypse coming, but it's just kind of a part of, of the culture here. And Helen Peterson, she did a wonderful job on kind of explaining all this in, yeah, that earwolf, yeah. uh, or in the podcast. Yeah, she's great. And yeah, and it also, it's worth saying with like, with a lot of these groups, there's a lot of normal people. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I'm framing it that way. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like there's, there is that picture of survivalism being uh, sort of like the video game Far Cry 5. Like it's a compound and, and uh, they're all like armed to the teeth and it's not, there's also a lot of people uh, who are not that, who just want to move to that area because they think yeah. the politics will work better and they'll still be like part of society and the community and stuff. Well, what's crazy is what I love about my town is that I live in North Idaho in Sandpoint, Idaho, and it is a mix of hardline conservatives and straight up hippies. And they kind of have this common ground of enjoying the land. There's a lot of homeschoolers. There's a lot of people who 
you know, grow their own vegetables and sell them at the farmer's market. And they have this one piece in common, which is they just want to get away from everybody else and, 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 and they enjoy living here. And there's that piece and it's kind of a peaceful place. It's interesting that these two completely opposed groups have so much in common. We've kind of found the same reason to go there, even though they want different stuff. Yeah. 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 Um, have you read Educated yet? Um, it's a, a book no. by Tara Westover. She's not from North Idaho. I think it's more closer to South Idaho. And it's this memoir that just came out last year, I think, um, from this woman who was raised in an Idaho prepper family. And they had a very weird mix of religious ideas, survivalism, apocalypse. They thought, you know, Y2K was going to destroy them all. And so this young lady did not have school at all. Like they said they were homeschooling, but they didn't. And um, the first time she ever went to school was in college. Like she got her act together as on her own to be able to get into college. And um, the memoir is just kind of like talking about her family's mindset and what it was like growing up without an education and growing up in Idaho with, you know, a very paranoid, she presents her father like he's bipolar and uh, like just insular group with a weird mix of like spirituality that they invented and just kind of the slow process of unlearning what she had known, like she had never had vaccines. And, and as an adult with a PhD or whatever, like she was very um, scared to go to the doctor and just, just kind of unlearning the way that she had been raised. And I, I really recommend it. It's a very interesting yeah. perspective because she's explaining the thought processes of her parents and, and how her thought process of believing them and how hard it was to join society when you've been raised with nothing but an apocalyptic, (laughs) distrustful, insular worldview. Like, did she leave the specific, very cloistered off family she was in just because she wanted to be more part of society or because she rejected her family's beliefs or or some mix of things? Because it sounds like she got out but was also still... Uh, also still had some of those beliefs ingrained maybe like if she, she was nervous. Do, I think she still does. Yeah. She, um, they had, they were Mormon, but they were of a, he, the father had his own interpretation of like, he thought he was having visions and he believed he was a prophet and wow. they were Mormon and she ended up going to BYU and I, and I assume she's still a Mormon. Um, it sounded like she just left, you know, little pieces. Like she didn't want to, her, ha- her home was actually dangerous um, because of the, they owned a junkyard and, and her father was very reckless and um, there were lots of injuries. She just kind of wanted to see the world. She had an older brother who went to college and he helped her with preparing and, and having the guts to leave. After she left, then she started to kind of look back and see what was completely wrong and what was you know, like, it, but it took years and years and years. Um, it took a while for her to get to a therapist. She needed to see a therapist to kind of help her process everything. But I think the, her initial um, departure was just to kind of see the world a little bit, you know, just kind of branch out and see what else was out there and um, to learn. She started wanting to learn more. And so she wanted to be in a classroom and actually get an education. And she had to like step out of her comfort zone to just do that. 
it's a really interesting book. I couldn't put it down. And it's very insightful on how, I don't know, like not how easy it is you can go into this world because it didn't sound easy for them to, to live their life the way that they did. I think they were off the grid. It's interesting to hear what it's like from their perspective to come in and then how we look to them. And it sounds like some of the draw to leave it was curiosity. It was just yeah. being so cut yeah. off from the rest of us. You just want to know, like you just want to go. I get like maybe how someone who grows up within mainstream society is like, ah, I'd love to see Europe, you know, or like just some like, oh, there's all this out there. Why don't I go? They yeah. probably feel that way about just the rest of us around them. <laughs> like, what could I discover? What could I see? Yeah. And her father was just like, he was the way she describes him. And I understand, I appreciate that this is all coming from her memory and childhood were relying on her narrative, but she would talk about how her father just thought people at college were communist or socialist, and he just hated doctors and hated anybody with an education and just in an angry, mean way. And to try to undo that, I I really appreciate because I don't know if I could. Like, I don't know if, if that were my upbringing, if I could just say, nope, I'm doing something completely different than what I was raised to do. That actually makes me sort of worry for the Benedict Option people too, because we, I don't know how much we talked about exactly what the day-to-day recommendations are for living that life, but uh, there are very, very positive things like feast with your neighbors or join the volunteer fire department. And like, oh, those are all just objectively positive things. Uh, But there's also a lot of um, leaving your life, current life completely in order to do it. Um, it requires, quote, seceding culturally from the mainstream, end quote, and that includes turning off smartphones, watching only movies and television that are consonant with Christian values, leaving public school and using a curriculum that's just based on the Bible and also what the book calls canonical Western texts. And so, like, it seems like I, I feel like children raised in that, you would just get so curious about the rest of the world. And it's also never been easier to access with the Internet. So it, it seems like yeah. people who jump into this life, like maybe people like Rod Dreher are so passionate about this Benedict Option kind of thing because they know how much of an uphill battle they'll have living it because the the people will just be curious about the rest of the world. I mean, I had a family friend when I was growing up, they were Christian or it was like my pastor and his family in the 80s homeschooled and didn't have TV and um, kind of had this idea of what he's talking about, like just really separating yourself, which is something else I wrote in our doc because this isn't new. Like it's not totally a brand new thing to kind of separate your own family culture from everybody else and still participate in society, just establish that we are not the same. Um, and this family, they did it. It was in the eighties. That was in the no internet. And you know, they just didn't watch TV. They, they had a VCR, they watched movies. Yeah. It seems like there's a way to, I mean, even on the, the basic garden variety level of like, I didn't see R-rated movies for a long time growing up. You know, like there, yeah. there's all kinds of things you can do to shape your child's experience of the world in ways you think are valid. And uh, parents are allowed to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Like it's fine, folks, if you're doing that. It just seems like the more people try to limit it, the more of an uphill thing it is. There is also, I feel like there's a thing with any of these groups of people who want to sort of form their own world, whether it's mentally by just building a more Christian home or physically by moving to the sea. Uh, Because again, seasteaders, hilarious, great. With any of them, it doesn't 
happen in a vacuum. It, it happens with the rest of us around. And I actually feel like some of these Silicon Valley people uh, have a particularly weird case for wanting to do their own prepping and breaking away. Um, when we did our episode about Silicon Valley preppers, it drew heavily on a New Yorker piece that, like many of the things we talked about, like that educated memoir and everything, we will footnote. The article talks about various like high-level tech people who are doing pretty extreme things, planning for not an end of the world that they think is coming for any religious reason. Like they think they've just examined society and seen it coming. Uh, they talked to the co-founder of Reddit, Steve Huffman, who got laser eye surgery because he feels that it will be hard to find glasses or contact lenses when the world ends. And they also talked to someone who is the head of an investment firm who says, I keep a helicopter gassed up all the time and I have an underground bunker with an air filtration <laughs> system. And they also talked to uh, Reed Hoffman, who is, uh, he was the founder of LinkedIn and he's a venture capitalist and a podcaster. Uh, he said that, he anecdotally was just going to visit New Zealand and he mentioned it to a Silicon Valley friend and the friend was like, oh, to build a survival house to like get out of here to get ready. And he was like, what do you mean? And it turns out New Zealand is like a prime place for these people to build their like escape from society because it's an island and pretty developed. What do they think is going to happen? So like some of them think it's going to be the giant San Andreas fault earthquake that's sort of been due, uh, oh, knock on, aggressively knocking okay. on wood where I am in Los Angeles. But it's also uh, some of them think that just economically and socially and in particular in terms of social cohesion, we're about to fall apart. Like they think it's it's sort of like that quote from Peter Thiel about not being worried about pandemics or zombies. He's worried about what people will do to each other. This mm. article quotes a lot of people who talk about society this way. Like, here's an example quote is from this person who says, quote, when society loses a healthy founding myth, it descends into chaos. I think people who are particularly attuned to the levers by which society actually works understand that we are skating on really thin cultural ice right now, end quote. And it's a lot of them say these kinds of things in the article and that particular quote came from Antonio Garcia Martinez, a 40-year-old former Facebook product manager living in San Francisco. <laughs> and tons of what? these other people like helped build social media platforms that I think are destabilizing society. So I I super judge these people. Like they they aren't just trying to live their lives and the and society's changing around them. Like they they partly broke it down. Like it's their fault. What's the healthy founding myth? I wonder that he thinks is disappearing. Yeah, um, that's a good question. Because like there are pieces of this that I'm like, okay, okay, yeah, um, you know the San Andreas fault. I don't, I don't know enough about that. I would assume that if that happened, you would just, you know, move inland. But okay, go to New Zealand, fine. And like if someone were to say, I think our economy is about to collapse and we're going to go Venezuela. Like if someone said that. They'd be like, ooh, really? Do you? Or you, do you have some insider information? And I mean, like, I would listen. Because we do see societies collapse. You know, that's a thing. It's, yeah, it's real. It has I don't happened. know that you necessarily need to build a bunker. You know, you just, if you have the means, you just move to somewhere where things are better. I mean, that's how I would approach it. 
yeah, there's little pieces of what they're saying that makes sense. I should probably get LASIK for maybe not the apocalypse, but, you know, in case, <laughs> in case there's like some kind of uh, natural disaster and I don't have my contacts with me, sure, it would be better if I got LASIK. That's fair. I like that they take it to the, oh, when the world is ending, I'll want to be able to see. And I, I can't tell if they're just like engaging in a fantasy life because they have the means to participate and, uh, you know, like to, to create a cool safety house or if they really know things that I need to be worried about um, or, you know, if, because they're on a different level of information than I am. Yeah, I can't tell if which which I should be look, more concerned about here. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because also I feel like in particular, these Silicon Valley people, sort of similar to how they think it's very easy to just go get another job because they're highly in-demand coders. Um, there's also the kind of thing where they've built startups, a lot of them. And so they've. Uh, if you've done that, you probably think, hey, I know the way society's going because I was smart enough to invent uh, taxi cabs without regulation, which is Uber, you know. Uh, so they probably think I'm also smart enough to see the way society's going in negative ways that tell me I should um, uh, build a bunker and move. We know that they don't actually know things. Like Mark Zuckerberg did not have the vision to understand what the yeah. impact that he was having. And these guys <laughs> are good at their thing. They're not necessarily good at the economy or how the future is going to play out. So, okay, I think I'm going on the road of thinking they're engaging in their fantasies because they can. Yeah, I tend I tend to, too. Because also in that article, they talked to Steve Huffman, that Reddit co-founder who got LASIK, and they asked him about what kind of got him interested in all this stuff. And one of the things he cites is Deep Impact, the mm-hmm. 1998 <laughs> asteroid movie. It just like got him thinking about the end of the world, and maybe that's a thing that could happen. I've seen that movie, too, so I think I know as much as he does <laughs> about... So deep impact happens. Is he going to go to a bunker? Like what's okay. Whatever. I'm not even, I don't need to engage with Steve Humphrey on his logic. And this New Zealand move is statistically real too. Uh, In the first seven days after Donald Trump was elected, over 13,000 Americans registered with New Zealand immigration authorities. And apparently that is more than 17 times the usual rate. And then in the first 10 months of 2016, before the election even happened, foreigners bought nearly 1,400 square miles of land in New Zealand, which is more than quadruple the same period the previous year. Uh, so there and are that's thousands. just New Zealand. <laughs> right. It's just one country. <laughs> that's, that's not wow. even Idaho or Montana or, or a, again, some crazy Pacific Ocean move they want to do. Like, there's so many thousands of people right now who are like spending fortunes on something that they simply really, really believe is going to happen. And in the case of the ones who got that fortune by working at Facebook, I think it's kind of their fault. I think they, <laughs> I think yeah. they should feel something about it. It's on you. Look in the mirror, Facebook. Um, <laughs> with the with the people who are taking out or buying land in New Zealand, I it's hard to tell if that's like a prepper situation or just I don't want to live in this country situation you know like if it's just I'm done and I'm leaving because some people said they would I'm curious if that's just people following through on leaving because we elected Donald Trump how far back can you remember 
elections leading to people say they're going to leave the country. Because I remember, especially George W. Bush's re-election being, uh, the, then the byword was like moving to Canada. Like, I'm out, I'm moving to Canada. And nobody really did it, uh, as far as I know. But In my circle, at that point, I was still so... Republican that it would have been like a celebration on oh, the right. re-election. So, um, <laughs> and I, I'm trying to think if I, during President Obama's elections, if people said no, they I don't think people were saying they would move to Canada because they were conservatives and Canada is socialist. So, yeah, I didn't really have the big I'm moving out of this country post until this election, this last election. Because I remember doing some research into whether people would move to Canada if Trump won. And it, it just seemed like the there's so many different hurdles to that kind of immigration. Yeah, immigration's really hard. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're, we are making it so brutally, horribly hard in this country, but other countries don't make it easy. There's a lot of paperwork and a lot of setup to do. And there's also like investor programs where you can be an immigrant if you promise to invest X amount of millions of dollars in that country and then also follow through on it. Like they check on it. Uh, Yeah. Canada has one and New Zealand actually has one. A lot of these people are uh, looking into that kind of program too. In the past six years, nearly a thousand foreigners acquired residency in New Zealand by doing a program where they invest at least a million dollars in the country. So like, so these Silicon Valley people can also just purchase the citizenship they need to. It's, it's, it's a very definite decision on their part. They could also use that million dollars to like, I don't know, improve their community and like help, help us all get through this. But sure, they're doing that too. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. I didn't know that. I feel like we will always see these movements that where, because like you said earlier on too, that's such a basic American thing of like, I'm leaving England to be more religiously free. And then I'm moving West to be more politically free. And then on Mm -hmm. and on and on and on. I do feel like maybe these movements will get weirder and weirder and weirder forever. I think it will be further and further into, uh, I'm going to live like it's the post Roman dark age, I think is real, or I'm going to live on a boat (laughs) or right. Like it seems like the future will just endlessly get the same, but stranger maybe. And and to me, these are all like the same. They're just the same version of the original American story, which is, I'm just going to (laughs) go do it. I can do it. I can do anything. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we can, right? The two of us, we can do anything. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. It's these people who are crazy. Start Alex Christie land and it would be fine. (laughs) Not if I build Alex land first. That is the episode for this week. My thanks to Christy Harrison for exploring all kinds of worlds with me. I thank you for that, too. And why don't you get an even closer look in our food notes, where you will find all kinds of statements on these movements from the people in them, especially seasteading and that Benedict option. I don't just want to dunk on them or just say they fundamentally don't understand society and history. I want you to see it for yourself or even disagree if you do. Also linking two past episodes of this show that you'll enjoy if you haven't heard them. One with Anne Helen Peterson, where we talk about the American Redoubt, that thing in Idaho, Montana, eastern Washington, Oregon. And we're also talking about the white masculinity that builds that in a lot of depth with an added layer of Justin Timberlake. Whoa, out of left field. Really interesting episode. 
And that other past show is an episode with Jack O'Brien and Katie Golden exploring those Silicon Valley doomsday preppers who often go from the Bay Area and all their wealth to the American readout for slightly different and much science fiction-ier reasons than those people I talk with Anne Helen Peterson about. Also linking you to the book Educated, a memoir. It's by Tara Westover, and it's the one Christy described earlier about growing up in a family that's left the rest of us behind. And there's more footnotes on the history of Mormons in America, also on transcendental communities that sprang up right around the same time in U.S. history as the Mormons. It was particularly the 1840s in New England with members who are famous novelists now. Nathaniel Hawthorne practiced communal agriculture at a community called Brook Farm. Louisa May Alcott's dad founded the equality-based but secretly unequal community of Fruitlands. Then there's Oneida and the Shakers. And if none of these names mean anything to you, that's totally okay. And there is an entire can of worms you're going to be fascinated by when you open it. This effort to separate from the rest of America cuts across all eras and political affiliations, and sometimes it's kind of a sex cult. You know, it's how it goes. But enough about sex cults. Let's talk about this episode of The Cracked Podcast, where our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Ryan Connor and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right. Social media, a place that might fund the first seasteads because what happens on social media is real and matters. Please be nice to each other out there. It's been a tough time. And if you want to be extra nice to me, follow my Twitter account at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my show dates and my newsletter and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.